Chapter Two of A Red Wallflower by Susan Warner. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Red Wallflower by Susan Warner. Chapter Two At Home. Upon reaching home, Esther sought to place her bloodroot in safety giving it a soft and well-dug corner in her little plot of garden-ground. She planted it with all care in the shadow of a rose-bush, and then went in to put her other flowers in water. The sitting-room, whither she went, was a large, low, pleasant place, very simply furnished, yet having a cheerful, cosy look, as places do where people live who know how to live. The room and the house, no doubt, owed its character to the rule and influence of Mrs. Gainsborough, who was there no longer, and to a family life that had passed away. The traces abode still. The chintz hangings and the carpet were of soft colours, and in good harmony. Chairs and lounges were comfortable. A great many books lined the walls, so many indeed that the room might have been styled the library. A portfolio with engravings was in one place, Mrs. Gainsborough's work-table in another, some excellent bronzes on the bookcases, one or two family portraits by good hands, and an embroidery frame. A fine English mastiff was sleeping on the rug before the fire, for the weather was still cold enough within doors to make a fire pleasant, and Colonel Gainsborough was a chilly man. He lay on the couch when Esther came in with her flowers, a book in his hand, but not held before his eyes. He was a handsome man, of a severe, grave type, though less well-looking at this time because of the spiritless, weary, depressed air which had become his habit. There was a want of spring and life and hope in the features, and in the manner also of the occupant of the sofa. He looked at Esther languidly as she came in and busied herself with arranging her maple blossoms, her hepatica, and one or two delicate stems of the bloodroot, in a little vase. Her father looked at the flowers and at her in silence. "'Papa, aren't these beautiful?' she asked with emphasis, bringing the vase when she had finished to his side. "'What have you got there, Esther?' "'Just some anemones and liver-leaf and bloodroot.' "'And maple blossoms, Papa. "'But Christopher calls them all sorts of big names.' "'They are very fragile blossoms,' the Colonel remarked. "'Are they? "'They won't do in the garden, Christopher says, "'but they grow nicely out there in the wood. "'Papa, what is the difference between a weed and a flower?' "'I should think you were old enough to know.' "'I know them by sight, sometimes. "'But what is the difference?' "'Your eyes tell you, do they not?' "'No, Papa. They tell me sometimes which is which. "'But, I mean, why isn't a flower a weed? "'I asked Christopher, but he couldn't tell me.' "'I do not understand the question. "'It seems to me you are talking nonsense.' "'The Colonel raised his book again, and Esther took the hint, "'and went back to the table with her flowers. "'She sat down and looked at them.' Fair they were, and fresh and pure, and they bore spring's messages to all that could hear the message. If Esther could, it was in a half-unconscious way that somehow awakened by degrees almost as much pain as pleasure, or else it was simply that the glow and stir of her walk was fading away, and allowing the old wanted train of thought to come in again. 
The bright expression passed from her face. The features settled into a melancholy dullness, most unfit for a child and painful to see. There was a droop of the corners of the mouth, and a lax fall of the eyelids, and a settled gloom in the face that covered it and changed it like a mask. The very features seemed to grow heavy in the utter heaviness of the spirit. She sat so for a while, musing, no longer busy with such pleasant things as flowers and weeds, then roused herself. The weariness of inaction was becoming intolerable. She went to a corner of the room where a large mahogany box was half concealed beneath a table covered with a cloth. With a good deal of effort, she lugged the box forth. It was locked, and she went to the sofa. Papa, may I look at the casts? Yes. You have got the key, Papa. The key was fished out of the colonel's waistcoat pocket, and Esther sat down on the floor and unlocked the box. It was filled with casts and plaster of Paris, of old medals and bas reliefs, and it had long been a great amusement of Esther's to take them all out and look at them, and then carefully pack them all away again between their layers of soft paper and cotton batting. In the nature of the case, this was an amusement that would pall if repeated too often, so it rarely happened that Esther got them out more than three or four times a year. This time she had hardly begun to take them out and place them carefully on the table when Mrs. Barker came in to lay the cloth for dinner. Esther must put the casts back and defer her amusement till another time in the day. Meals were served now for the colonel and his daughter in this same room, which served for sitting-room and library. The dining-room was disused. Things had come by degrees to this irregularity. Mrs. Barker, finding that it made her less work, and the colonel in his sorrowful abstraction hardly knowing and not at all caring where he took his dinner. The dinner was carefully served, however, and delicately prepared, for there Barker's pride came into her help and besides, little as Colonel Gainsborough attended now to the food he ate, it is quite possible that he would have rebelled against any disorder in that department of the household economy. The meal-times were sorrowful occasions to both the solitary personages who now sat down to the table. Neither of them had become accustomed yet to the empty place at the board. The Colonel ate little, and talked none at all and only Esther's honest childish appetite saved these times from being seasons of intolerable gloom. Even so, she was always glad when dinner was done. By the time that it was over to-day, and the table cleared, Esther's mood had changed, and she no longer found the box of casts attractive. She had seen what was in it so often before, and she knew just what she should find. At the same time, she was in desperate want of something to amuse her, or at least to pass away the time, which went so slowly if unaided. She bethought her of trying another box, or a series of boxes, over which she had seen her father and mother spend hours together. But the contents hitherto had not seemed to her interesting. The key was on the same chain with the key of the casts. Esther sat down on the floor by one of the windows, having shoved one of the boxes into that neighborhood, turned the key, and opened the cover. Her father was lying on the couch again, and gave her no attention, and Esther made no call upon him for help. An hour or two had passed. Esther had not changed her place, and the box, which contained a quantity of coins, was still open. But the child's hands lay idly in her lap, 
and her eyes were gazing into vacancy. Looking back, perhaps, at the images of former days, smiling images of light and love, in scenes where her mother's figure filled all the foreground, Colonel Gainsborough did not see how the child sat there, nor what an expression of dull, hopeless sorrow lay upon her features. All the life and variety of which her face was abundantly capable had disappeared. The corners of the mouth drawn down, the brow rigid, the eyes rayless, she sat an image of childish desolation. She looked even stupid, if that were possible to Esther's features and character. What the father did not see was revealed to another person, who came in noiselessly at the open door. This newcomer was a young man, hardly yet arrived at the dignity of young manhood. He might have been eighteen, but he was really older than his years. His figure was well developed, with broad shoulders and slim hips, showing great muscular power and the symmetry of beauty as well. The face matched the figure. It was strong and fine, full of intelligence and life, and bearing no trace of boyish willfulness. If willfulness was there, which I think, it was rather the considered and consistent willfulness of a man. As he came in at the open door, Esther's position and look struck him. He paused half a minute. Then he came forward, came to the colonel's sofa, and standing there bowed respectfully. The colonel's book went down. "'Ah, William,' said he, in a tone of indifferent recognition. "'How do you do, sir, to-day?' "'Not very well. My strength seems to be giving way, I think, by degrees. "'We shall have warm weather for you soon again, sir. That will do you good.' "'I don't know,' said the colonel. "'I doubt it. I doubt it. "'Unless it could give me the power of eating, which it cannot. "'You have no appetite?' "'That does not express it.' There was an almost imperceptible flash in the eyes that were looking down at him, the features, however, retaining their composed gravity. "'Perhaps shad will tempt you. We shall have them very soon now. Can't you eat shad?' "'Shad,' repeated the colonel. "'That's your New England piscatory dainty. I have never found out why it is so reckoned.' "'You cannot have eaten them, sir. That's all. That is, not cooked properly.' "'Take one broiled over a fire of corn-cobs.' "'A fire of corn-cobs?' "'Yes, sir. Over the coals of such a fire, of course, I mean.' "'Ah, what's the supposed advantage?' "'Flavour, sir. Gusto. A spicy delicacy, which from being the spirit of the fire comes to be the spirit of the fish. It is difficult to put anything so ethereal into words.' This was spoken with the utmost seriousness. "'Ah,' said the colonel, "'Possibly. Barker manages those things.' "'You do not feel well enough to read to-day, sir?' "'Yes,' said the colonel. "'Yes. One must do something. As long as one lives, one must try to do something. Bring your book here, William, if you please. I can listen, lying here.' The hour that followed was an hour of steady work. The colonel liked his young neighbour, who belonged to a family also of English extraction, though not quite so recently moved over as the colonel's own. Still, to all intents and purposes, the Dallases were English, had English connections and English sympathies, and had not so long mingled their blood with American that the colour of it was materially altered. It was natural that the two families should have drawn near together in social and friendly relations, which relations, however, 
would have been closer if in church matters there had not been a diverging power which kept them from any extravagance of neighborliness this young fellow however whom the colonel called william showed a carelessness as to church matters which gave him some of the advantages of a neutral ground and latterly since his wife's death colonel gainsborough had taken earnestly to the fine spirited young man welcomed his presence when he came and at last partly out of sympathy partly out of sheer loneliness and emptiness of life he had offered to read the classics with him in preparation for college and this for several months now they had been doing so that william was a daily visitor in the colonel's house end of chapter two recording by hannah mary